Hi, and welcome to the Did You Know Crypto podcast. Today, I'm really, really pleased to be welcoming Robert Murphy of the Contra Krugman podcast. If you don't know who he is, you're about to, and you're in for a real treat. Been really, really looking forward to this episode as it's someone I've been listening to in my own podcast for, for quite a few years. So before we get in there, I'd just like to ask you one thing. If you could go over to iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts and leave a rating and review, it really does help me out. If you also want to support me, head over to digitalcrypto.com and click on the Amazon link. Do all your shopping through that. So with all that said, thank you for listening and enjoy the show. Pleased to introduce Robert Murphy, Senior Fellow at the Ludwig von Mises Institute, Research Assistant Professor at Texas Tech, co-host of the Contra Krugman podcast, and author of numerous books, including The Politically Incorrect Guide to Capitalism, The Primal Prescription, and his latest, Contra Krugman, Smashing the Errors of America's Most Famous Keynesian. Bob, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me, Dustin. Uh, yeah, I wanted to have you on the show since, you know, Bitcoin is inexorably you know, intertwined with the Austrian School of Economics. Um, it was even mentioned by Satoshi, you know, talking about Mises regression theorem. And I thought it'd be important to kind of provide an overview of just what that was. You know, most people think that, you know, economics is economics is economics, and that there's just some minor disagreements on, you know, very specific policies. So I wanted just to start by asking the simple question of, what is the Austrian School of Economics? And how did you come to the conclusion that it was the correct way to view the economy. Okay, great. Um, so, so the Austrian school, and I'll, I'll try to be brief and, and cater to, you know, your particular listeners and their interests, but it's a, it's a school of thought, you know, there's the Keynesian, the Chicago school and so forth. So the Austrian school is named as people can guess, because the original founders of it happened to be from Austria. And so the, the German economists, and the, this is back in the late 1800s, sort of derided it and said, oh, that's Austrian economics. Because at that time, you know, Germany was like the center of uh, discussion and, and Austria was considered a backwater. So it was sort of a term of disparagement, but the name stuck. And um, some big names in, the, in that line of thought. So Karl Menger was the originator and you've got uh, Bambavirk and of course then Mises in the 20th century was the leader of the Austrian school. Um, and people like Israel Kirzner, Friedrich Hayek, who won the Nobel Prize, and also Murray Rothbard was a famous economist in that tradition, who obviously has inspired a lot of people in the, in the libertarian community, especially in the United States. So real briefly, some of the things that separates the Austrian approach from others, it's not very mathematical, and not because the Austrians are incapable of doing math, but because they think that that's like the the method of of physics. Let's say they don't think is appropriate when it comes to understanding human behavior. Um, they, for various reasons, they think, think you know humans are too unpredictable. There's not constants in human action the way there are in physics or chemistry. Like you know, you charge on an electron, mass of the moon, that kind of stuff. Um, and and so that's one element as far as differences in terms of money. In banking, and uh, what I think would be of most relevance to your crowd, is that the Austrians tend to be very free market, but you could say so is the Chicago School. But the Austrians, in my view, are extremely um, consistent on this, where they, for example, Ludwig von Mises thinks that the business cycle is caused by a government intervention in the banking sector, that it, um, the banks are allowed to inflate the currency push interest rates artificially low, and that sets up an unsustainable boom period. So the Austrians, like, you know, they want to have a free market, not just in schools and mail delivery, but also when it comes to money and banking. And even the Chicago school, I think is, you know, they're not, they wouldn't agree with that. They, Chicago school economists tend to think there's a role for a central bank, just as long as it, as they're the ones advising it or running it. Um, so those are some of the the big differences. Um, how I came into Austrian economics. When I was younger, I got into just sort of like conservative libertarian political commentary. And then I started reading more in economics and people like Thomas Sowell and Walter Williams were my heroes. And, you know, so they were very free market libertarian. 
And then I got Henry Hazlitt's Economics in One Lesson, and he mentioned this guy Mises, and I somehow discovered Rothbard and Mises, and they just were the, especially Rothbard was probably you know the the thing that really solidified it for me is he he's just a very clear writer. Even when you disagree with Rothbard, you know exactly what his position is, and I just I felt like I, I learned the most about how the economy, how the world works, and particularly the market economy from Mises and Rothbard. And, you know, so that's why I, I thought the Austrian school and, and again, their, their, their understanding and explanation for the business cycle, I think is the closest thing to really nailing it of any of the major schools of thought, you know, even compared to like the Chicago school. So, so that's, that's why I, I think the Austrian school is important. Also their, their understanding of money, I think is, is very advanced just to give you an idea. So Carl Menger, in the Encyclopedia of Economics in the late 1800s, he was the one who wrote the entry on the origin of money. Okay, so that, you know, that was like considered his area of expertise, such that he was the one who did the the encyclopedia entry. So the Austrians, I think, are, are you know the, their approach is very suitable, su- well suited to understanding monetary theory. And Mises made a bunch of contributions in the early 1900s. Um, what what we could call his his doctoral dissertation. Is, is what we now translate as the theory of money and credit. So um, in terms of monetary theory and understanding business cycles, I think the Austrians have the most well-developed theoretical apparatus. I was, um, I was wondering if we could actually go into, you know, the you, you mentioned money, uh, kind of go into kind of a basics overview of what is money in general. Most people just kind of think that they have an understanding of it, but uh, within, uh, you know, economics and especially within the Austrian school, there's, there's, there's different classifications of, of what is money and what is a sound money and what is not a sound money. Um, I was wondering if you could kind of just kind of give a, a brief overview for, for the beginner listener. Sure. And, and part of this like framework that I'm going to explain here briefly, you, you use this when you're trying to, it's tied to Carl Menger's explanation of the origin of money. And so I won't get into that so much, but I'm just explaining like that's partly why Austrians are such sticklers for these particular definitions, whereas other economists kind of just jump into it like, oh, yeah, everybody knows what money is. Give me a break. Um, and so for the Austrians, the, the first concept that you need to understand is what's called a medium of exchange. And so that is it's, it's a good. So you can't you have something like you have a consumption good. And so that's something that you, you value because you're going to just consume it. You know, it's going to directly give you pleasure. Um, or you could have a production good. And so that's something that, you know, it's, you're, you're going to use it, but it's, it's indirectly giving you, you know, helping you in some way. So like a hammer, it's not that you're going to eat the hammer or that it's pretty to look at, but it's obviously useful because it helps you build a house. And then the house is the thing that directly gives you happiness because it keeps you out of the elements, that kind of stuff. But then a medium of exchange, that's a, a particular kind of good where, the reason you're accepting it, the reason you value it is not because you're going to use it either directly or even indirectly as a consumption or production good, but because you're going to trade it away again in the future. And so that's why they call it a medium of exchange, because it's something through which exchanges are effected. And so that's the thing that would allow like trilateral exchanges. So if you imagine, you know, three people like picture them in, in like a triangle format and, you know, one guy has something the next guy wants, but not vice versa. And you just have that be true three times in a row where, you know, all three of them, if they could just sort of like each guy hands one thing off to the guy on the left and then accepts the thing from the guy on the right, again, picture them arranged like in a triangle format. And then they're all happier with that new outcome than the status quo that that can't be done in terms of bilateral exchanges, right? If you just had to, you know, imagining that no, any any one of those swaps would make one party worse off, then you know that that exchange can't happen. Those gains from trade won't happen unless there's a medium of exchange. Unless you know one guy accepts something from the guy on his left and gives up his thing, it makes that guy happier. Why? Not because he directly values the thing he got, but because he knows that the neighbor to his right values the thing he just got. And he's going to tr- swap it. Okay, so. That's what a medium of exchange is. And, you know, once you, I'm, I'm, I might even make it harder than it needs to be, but that's the formal definition and that, you know, that's how it works. And so the benefit, of course, is that it allows for more gains from trade than would happen just from bilateral one-shot exchanges. 
And so Menger used that notion to explain the origin of money. And so he thought, you know, back in a primitive time when all we had was direct exchange, when you just had people making bilateral one-off exchanges, that, you know, what happens if somebody had something that was valuable, but only a few people in the community wanted it, like, let's say like a telescope or something like, so it's a very intricate telescope, let's say that, you know, you knew if you could find the right person who really was in the market that day for a telescope, they'd give you a lot, they'd, you know, they'd give you 20 sheep for it or something, but it was hard to come by such a person because not many people want a telescope, especially like on any particular day. And so if you could find anybody who wanted, let's say you were trying to sell your telescope and what you really wanted was milk, you know, the chances of you finding somebody who's in the market that day who has a bunch of milk and wants your telescope is, you know, exceedingly small. So the idea was if you find anybody with anything that's more marketable than your telescope and who wants a telescope, you make the trade. And so the stuff you're getting is a sort of a stepping stone to what you really want, which is the milk. Because you're, you know, if somebody gives you berries or tobacco for your telescope, it's more likely you're going to find someone with milk who wants tobacco than who wants your telescope, right? So there you're accepting the tobacco, not because you're a smoker, but because you know other people in the community are more likely to take the tobacco. And so Menger showed how goods that originally had a high degree of marketability, that gets enhanced because everyone realizes that and then they're willing to accept those things in trades not because they directly value them, but because they're media of exchange for the, you know, for the plural. And so once that happens, the process snowballs. And then ultimately, one or more commodities might be so advantageous in that respect that if basically the whole community, whatever they're selling, would be willing to accept that particular thing because they know, oh, yeah, I, whatever it is I want, this is a good stepping stone to it. I'll just sell, the, sell whatever it is I have to get rid of today, and I'll accept this commodity in exchange, even if I don't want to consume it directly, because I know this thing, I can get whatever I want because everybody accepts it. And that's what money is. So money is just a particular kind of medium of exchange that's universally accepted. All right. So that's, that's the progression. And that's how Menger explains step-by-step the origin of money without having to invoke some wise king or just, you know, like these brilliant people who in a state of barter just thought about it and realized, oh, wow, if there was one good that everybody accepted, that no, he doesn't need to do that. Just It could spontaneously emerge, just everybody very myopically looking at what makes them better off and you know accepting things that are more marketable than the, than the thing they're trying to get rid of. That could step-by-step step lead to the, you know, the emergence of a money. So in that story... Um, and and this is going to, so don't worry, this this is tied into the regression theorem that has has so much relevance for the Bitcoin debate. But that's the that's where it came from. You know, that's Menger's story. So then um, what Mises pointed out is, is Mises was saying, so, OK, if you, if you buy that story, then every everything that serves as a money must have started out um, as a regular commodity. Right. And so if you just think about in that story, like how I you know, was explaining, like tobacco could have become a medium of exchange. And then if enough people wanted it, maybe the tobacco would be the money for that community. But people had to originally want tobacco to smoke it. Right. That, that's that's where you know, it wasn't just you arbitrarily valued it. And so Mises point was in order for that process to get off the ground, people would have to have some frame of reference to know this medium of exchange that more and more people are accepting. How do they know what it's what its value is like its market weight or, you know, like how much does it trade for other things in the marketplace? They would need some frame of reference. So it would have had to start as a regular commodity just in, in regular trades. So they would have some price as it were. And so then he and then he said, and, and so even money, like in his day, gold and silver, he was saying you could trace, you could trace back the purchasing power of money back to the time at which it was just, you know, those are just regular metals that were valued because they were, you know, their intrinsic properties, not because they were useful as media of exchange. So that's what the regression theorem is. It's saying that even something that nowadays is valued primarily in its capacity as money, that the reason you would, you know, sell labor hours for an ounce of gold isn't because you, you plan on using it, you know, is for your teeth or, other, you know, to make jewelry or whatever, just because, no, you know, people are going to value gold next year as well. And so you're kind of using it as a store of, of wealth, if you will. Even if that's the main motivation nowadays, still, you know, Mises says you could trace step by step back historically 
to when gold was valued just because it was a certain kind of money with certain properties, or sorry, a certain kind of metal with certain properties. So that's what the regression theorem is. Um, and then uh, I guess you probably you'll, you'll ask about Bitcoin, but the last thing from your question, you said about sound money. So the idea here is in, in that setup, gold and silver, like, so there's various properties of things that make them better or worse media of exchange. So things like um, if they're durable, like physically, um, you know, so like tissues wouldn't be a good medium of exchange because if it rains, you know, they, they wither and so forth. Um, thing like diamonds are good on several dimensions, but they're not homogeneous, right? Like it's not like a pound of diamonds is a pound of diamonds. It depends how big they are, how they've been cut. Whereas like an ounce of gold is basically an ounce of gold. Like you could just always melt it down. And, you know, as long as it was really gold and not some knockoff, you know, it is what it is. So that's why gold and silver, you know, they were um, homogeneous items. They their, their market value per unit weight was pretty convenient for either large transactions or small ones for gold and silver. And so there's on many dimensions, gold and silver really good, where something like cows there's something that might be good in some categories, but like you got to feed them, they go to the bathroom. If if you want to buy something that's half of a cow, if you cut the cow in half, it dies, right? Whereas with gold, you know, an ounce of gold, you can easily break it in half, right? So those are the reasons historically that gold and silver tended to emerge as the market's premier commodity monies because they just, you know, they had lots of things going for them. They didn't really have any big strikes against them. And so that's why they emerged as, you know, in terms of physical things, is the market's money. And then I've, I've heard you talk on on the on Contra Kruger, and um, there was a specific episode, I think that was, right, what, about f- within the last month, maybe six weeks, where you guys specifically talked about uh, Paul Krugman's critique of it. But I was wondering if you could go over uh, your, um, where, where you come from, where Bitcoin actually fits within Mises' regression theorem, and is it a sound money, fiat money, does it matter? You know, that that sort of thing. Okay, sure. So, and I'm sure many of your listeners who were following these debates can remember, it, it's died down a lot, you know, in recent years. But back when, when Bitcoin was first coming on the scene and a lot of libertarians and Austrians were considering it and you know, trying to grapple with it, like, what the heck is this? There were a lot of naysayers who were saying, no, whatever this thing is, you know, maybe it's some cool technology and maybe you can do other stuff with it, but it's not going to ever be money because didn't Mises show with his regression theorem that any genuine money had to, you know, have it, if you trace back its history, it had to start out in its life cycle as a regular commodity. And, and by the way, just in case some of your listeners are confused, even modern state issued fiat currencies like the dollar that historically at one point was linked to gold or silver. And so that's how, you know, like the like fiat money, state issued fiat money nowadays does not violate the regression theorem because for all those you could trace back to say, oh, you know, back at this point in time, the way people knew how much a dollar was worth was because it was redeemable in gold and silver. Okay, so that's why those don't violate it. But with Bitcoin, since it would never had a history of being, you know, legally redeemable as, as in some other currency or whatever, like it, it, it wasn't clear. How could it ever get off the ground? How would anybody know how much it was, you know, a one Bitcoin was worth without a prior history of it being valued for non-monetary purposes to give us a frame of reference as to, you know, what its purchasing power should be. So that's what the critique was. And so my modest point was to say that, you know, once it got up and running, you know, once, once we were into 2011, 2012, clearly, Bitcoin at that point was a medium of exchange, right? You, you, we could quibble about is it a money or not, but clearly some people were selling real goods and services in exchange for Bitcoins, not because they were going to eat them or not because they were going to use the Bitcoins to build something, but because they planned on trading those Bitcoins away again in the future. So that's what the, that's what a medium of exchange is. And so Bitcoins for sure qualified. And so if you go and read Mises' actual work on this stuff, he didn't just say any money has to satisfy the regression theorem and you know be able to trace it back to when it was just a regular commodity. He says any medium of exchange. And so my, what I was saying to these fans of Mises is you're setting him up for failure that the way you're the way you're trying to apply the regression theorem, he's already wrong. Because if the way you're trying to use the regression theorem is valid, Bitcoin, it's not just that it can never become a money. It can't even be a medium of exchange, and yet we could just look at look outside and see that it is a medium of exchange already. 
So that's kind of what I was saying. And so there's, you know, you can either deal with that by saying, all right, Mises was just wrong and Bitcoin really does falsify the regression theorem, or you can, you know, uh, expound the regression theorem in a way that it's consistent with the emergence of Bitcoin. I don't really care which, which route you take, but my, my more modest point was simply Mises regression theorem does not say Bitcoin can never become money. Because really, if it, if it was going to have some kick, it already would have jumped in at step one and Bitcoin never would have become a medium exchange. And yet we can see that it is. So that's um, th- that's what I would say there. Now, as far as the dispute over is Bitcoin should be classified as fiat or not. So Mises, in his framework, he had commodity money on the one hand as, in, as opposed to fiat money. So commodity money is what it sounds like, just things that are regular commodities that are valued, you know, because of the, just as other commodities would be. And then they also happen to be money, whereas fiat currency or fiat money, it's 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 it is not a useful commodity by itself. And the only reason you would value it is because of its monetary function and the, where the word fiat comes in. So, and this is where the dispute comes from. So some people think that what that means is, oh, because the state. You know, the political authorities are by fiat saying this is money and then they're forcing people with their guns to use the thing as money, in which case, if, if that's your definition, then, then Bitcoin's obviously not fiat because, you know, there's no coercion involved. But I actually don't think, you know, if you look at it, I don't think that's really what Mises, where his definition, what, what the real distinction is. I think the, the actual distinction is to say that with a fiat money, there's arbitrary characteristics that somebody is sort of issuing by fiat, meaning they're sort of arbitrarily just announcing the requirements to what makes something valid money versus not. So like with the US dollar right now, you know, there's nothing really particularly special about the the, the latest way that a $20 bill looks, right? The $20 bill today looks different from how they used to make them in 1930. Well, let's, let's say 19. 19- 85. So we're not, you know, not when it was tied to gold. And so, you know, just the, the actual look of it, like you can tell, oh yeah, this, this was a more recently issued US dollar, that kind of thing. And, you know, and what makes it counterfeit versus what makes it authentic. It's not because of any, you know, intrinsic property of the piece of paper and the functions it can serve. It's just kind of an arbitrary thing about, well, the Bureau of Engraving or the Treasury said such and such. And so a bank teller will look at the thing. Whereas with gold coins, you don't need to know where it came from. You can just say, is this thing gold or not? Like that's, that's, you know, that's a, there's a a fact of the matter based on chemistry that, you know, a a metallurgist can test with physical properties. Whereas the dollar, what makes it authentic versus counterfeit, that's kind of a more arbitrary thing. So likewise, I'm going to say with Bitcoin, whether, you know, the fact that there's 20, there's going to be 21 million Bitcoins total. Well, that's kind of arbitrary. It could have just as easily been 25 million or 6 million. You know, there's nothing there. You see, there, there's nothing there that's analogous to how many gold coins are there. Whereas that's like really a, a physical fact of nature. The number of bitcoins is clearly just something that's kind of arbitrary. And so that's, you know, that's why I'm saying I think Bitcoin would have to be classified as fiat money. But again, it's an awkward thing because historically, fiat always went hand in hand with the bad money issued coercively by governments, and commodity money always went hand in hand with the good money voluntarily produced by the market that you know wasn't be, that you couldn't inflate too much and that you know you had it stored its value. Mm-hmm. Whereas if now with Bitcoin, it's kind of an awkward thing that I, I'm forced to say it's fiat because I don't think it's a commodity, but. And I still think, you know, Bitcoin is, is not inflationary the way, you know, the dollar is or something. And, and it's, it's certainly voluntary. So that's sort of a there's different schools of thought. And as you mentioned, Tom Woods comes down. He thinks he wants, you know, it, the, the awkwardness is if you don't if you don't want to say Bitcoin's fiat, then you're kind of forced to say it's commodity money. And that seems kind of weird because the only thing Bitcoin really is, is its role is facilitating, you know, transactions. It's not that you do something else with Bitcoin except to be, you know, the thing that affects transfers. Yeah, no, it's, I I think, you know, when when I heard that episode, I think uh, myself along with anybody else that's been in kind of the libertarian or, you know, that's uh, been kind of a student of the Austrian school just kind of takes an immediate revulsion at the sound of, of, of fiat. Um, I, I, I also, I had Jeff Tucker on a few months back and his theory 
on on Bitcoin and the, and the regression theorem is that um, it does meet uh, the the definition of commodity by the fact that he says that the the specific translation is not necessarily correct into English, and that the, the definition of sound money for Mises was, and I, I don't have that that translation in front of me, was that it, it was could be translated better as um, a commodity or service prior to it being adopted as money, and that you could make the argument that blockchain and or Bitcoin itself by using the blockchain prior to anybody using it as a medium of exchange could be classified as a service um, and would meet that definition possibly of the, the, the commodity or service. I didn't know what your thoughts on that were. Yeah. Sure. So it's, and I've heard, yes, I, I've heard people make that. And Jeff, I think was one of the first ones that I heard making that point. So I'm not going to say, oh no, that's clearly wrong. Me personally, I, that's not the way, that's not how I deal. So up till now, I've been kind of coy with you and, you know, in general, I try to not take a, a firm stance just because I think it's more important to make the the point that's, that I, to me is irrefutable that Mises regression theorem clearly can't say that Bitcoin will never become money because again, it already would have kicked in. Um, but the, to, to me, I, I think what happened is that, that Mises did, that, that Bitcoin kind of skirted the th- the way Mises was trying to stop it in its tracks. That Because again, the, the whole point, what Mises was saying is in order for something to become a medium of exchange and start to be accepted by people, not because they directly valued what it could do for them, either in consumption or production, but because they were going to trade it away, well, you'd have to have some expectation of what's this thing going to be worth tomorrow when I go to sell it. Otherwise, how would you know how much to be willing to give up today, right? Like if you were in a coma and woke up in 60 years and people came in like, oh my gosh, somebody from 2018, you've been out this whole time. We, 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 you know, we want to ask you all these questions. What was life like back then? That was the age of Trump. And hey, we'll, you know, a TV studio says, we'll, we'll buy your story from you for $2 million. At first, that sounds great, but you might catch yourself and say, wait a minute, let me go stick my head out the window and see what things cost nowadays because I've been out for 60 years or whatever I said. And so for all you know, maybe $2 million when you wake up from your coma only, you know, buys a loaf of bread, right? So by the same token, then for something to become a medium of exchange and people are willing to sell their telescope for tobacco or whatever, to know how many pounds of tobacco should I be willing to sell this telescope for, you need to have some idea of what does tobacco get me in the community? So that's why Mises was saying for this story to work, something, you know, it had to have first been trading against other things as a regular commodity. So that you would have some frame of reference to know what's its purchasing power before you could bootstrap it and start using it just as a you know as a stepping stone. But with Bitcoin, that's not what happened, right? That it's not that people were trading bitcoins for you know for some other reason beyond what it was ultimately destined to be. What happened was originally you know was that some guy sold something for a pizza or whatever, and it was extreme. You know, all he did was give up a pizza. And so, you know, I, I would just classify it and say what they did is they recognized at first they might have just been pure like hobby, like they were just kind of doing it for fun, just to screw around, play with the technology. But ultimately, I think they had a vague sense that if this thing took off, it could be worth a lot. And so, yeah, sure, I'll go ahead and effectively invest one pizza in acquiring a bunch of these things, you know, on the off chance that it takes off. So I think that's the way it got off the ground is that it in the, in the beginning, the price of Bitcoin or the value of Bitcoin was almost zero, but not exactly zero. And then once people were accepting it, then, you know, it, it bootstrapped on that. So I think that was kind of the flaw in Mises' argument is he was assuming if you had no frame of reference and really didn't know how to value it, you just wouldn't accept it. When at least in with the case of Bitcoin, to me, it seemed like if you encountered some new thing, and you weren't really sure how to value it, that you would accept it for a very little upfront investment. You know, in other words, for you just to give basically a few dollars to get some of those things, you might as well just do it on a lark. And so, to me, that's I think that was kind of the the flaw or the or the or the, the chink in the armor of Mises' argument. And I, I had one more kind of uh, niche question for the you know really down into the weeds of of kind of uh, of those those of us who kind of read more deeply into this. But uh, so with, with Rothbard, it, it was very critical of Hayek's idea of the private issuance of currencies. Uh, but however, with Bitcoin, this seems to be kind of almost you know like 
you said also with Mises, kind of sidestep that as well with the protocol controlling supply. Cause that was always Rothbard's big criticism was like, what's to stop the private banks from doing the exact same thing that, that the state banks do. Um, and what would you, do you think that Rothbard would have changed his mind on the private issuance of currencies, given the kind of, you know, protocol level inability to create any more Bitcoin other than that 21 million? Or do you think that he would still think the same or is it impossible to tell? Um, let me answer Tell me if this is answering your question. So, yes, it's true that Rothbard was very critical of Hayek's um, plan for privately issued paper fiat money by you know, private institutions that, that had no monopoly that you know, were just trying to get the public to accept their paper notes. So sort of like privatizing central banks. So yeah, Rothbard was very critical of that. And it wasn't just that he predicted that they wouldn't work. I think, you know, it was a stronger thing where he was just downright hostile to it and thought, you know, Hayek was misunderstanding the the the, the importance of sound commodity money and the, and, the, and the role that that served. So so that's so given that my guess is that Rothbard would have been very skeptical of Bitcoin when it first came on the scene. But if the you know if history progressed the way it has, I think over time he would have like realized that oh actually this is pretty you know this is this is an interesting and he would have seen the way that it is sort of short circuiting you know the, the state and sort sort of like the the analogy I use is with like like Uber or Lyft the 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 benefit of those things is that even people who aren't going to sit there and listen to an economics lecture they can with their own eyes see how that works and realize that, oh, wait a minute, all these arguments that we need to have the government limiting how many taxi medallions there are, because otherwise the consumers are going to get ripped off or, you know, they're going to have axe murderers picking them up and driving them some dark alley and slaughtering them. That's all crazy. In in real life, the reason that cities are, you know, like the taxi cab unions are trying to keep Uber out is just to keep their prices up. Like everybody knows that and they know that the Uber rides are safer and cleaner than the standard taxi ride and so forth. So in the same way, I think the existence of Bitcoin and then the other cryptocurrencies that spawned is showing people that the state doesn't have to control money and that if if there is a crackdown on Bitcoin coming from the government, it's clearly not because they care about the welfare of consumers. It's because they want to, you know, maintain their monopoly. So I I think Rothbard over time, once, you know, as Bitcoin continued to to exist and didn't go to zero. I think he probably would have come around and at least said, I can, I can give it that. Like I can appreciate the, the role that it's playing in sort of waking the public up and, you know, giving a middle finger to the central banks. No, that, 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 uh, that, that sounds great. I, I, I tend to agree with you. Um, I, I wanted to pull back a little bit out of, out of the weeds that, uh, that I pulled us into and kind of go back uh, a big, larger overview of the Austrian school. Cause I think it's really important. It gets mentioned so much in Bitcoin circles, especially in the, I'd say in the, in the Bitcoin, Bitcoin maximalist community more than anything else. But uh, you know, the Austrian school is brought up in, in contention with kind of some of the other crypto projects kind of have more of a, almost a Keynesian protocol, I guess, in a way. And it's brought up so often, but I don't think that it's explained very often. And it gets such to be such an insular community that when pe- new people come in, we don't really explain, you know, you know, the, the importance of the Austrian school as well. We, we've gone into the basics of it a little bit, but, and, and you kind of talked about, you know, with the Chicago school, but I was wondering if you could um, frame, you know, like the main, real main differences between, Austrian and the other major schools, mainly, I mean, the, the, the biggest difference I would say probably between Austrian and, and Keynesian, since Keynesianism seems to be the, the within states, uh, the modern nation state seems to be kind of the flavor that everyone seems to, to go with. Sure. So I, th- I think in, in day-to-day practice, the biggest difference, like, as you mentioned in the intro, I have the show Contra Krugman that I do with Tom Woods, where we take on Paul Krugman, who's the big Keynesian, um, in my book, Contra Krugman, and this is what we, we talk about. So most of it, it has to do with um, what what's the government's proper policy response when there's a recession, or even more so like during the Great Depression. And so the Keynesian school thinks that 
recessions and depressions are ultimately driven by a collapse in aggregate demand. It's just for whatever reason, the private sector is not spending enough, both on consumption and investment. And so the Keynesians say, so normally what you would do is the central bank would cut interest rates to try to stimulate investment spending and get consumers to be willing to borrow more and spend more. But if you're in what's called a liquidity trap, then interest rates, even if they get down to zero, you still got a hole where spending is not big enough to provide full employment. And then there's a role for the federal government to come in and run a budget deficit. So that the, you know, if effectively the government's spending more money than it's taxing. So it's adding net demand to the economy because in the Keynesian view, there needs to be enough spending in order to employ everybody. So that's, that's what they look at as a recession is there's not enough spending for everyone to be, to be hired. And that's why there's you know, high unemployment. And so in the Austrian framework, that's just totally wrong that you know, spending is not the hard thing. The hard thing is to create, you know, to use resources to create goods and services that people want and that are you know, an, an efficient use of those resources. And um, to understand why is there a recession, it's not enough just to look, at, you know, look, look around at that moment and say, well, gee, there should be more spending. The issue is that there was a prior unsustainable boom period. So in the Austrian view, to understand like the 29 stock market crash and then the, you know, the early 30s depression, it's, you would have to look at the earlier, the, the boom of the 1920s, and that's where the seeds were sown that ultimately led to that crisis. It's not just a matter of, oh, in 1930, spending collapsed, and so we just need to boost spending. So that's, you know, that's one of the, the big differences in the Austrian approach. And, and so what the Austrians say causes that unsustainable boom is artificially low interest rates or easy credit. And so they say the Keynesians, when they re- recommend slashing interest rates and flooding the markets with new money, you're just setting the economy up for another crash down the road. You're not really solving the problem that you're actually the cause of the problem. Yes. I mean, it was, it was actually kind of the, the, the bit of soul searching, I guess, post 2008. Uh, I, I wasn't interested in economics really at all. And I was kind of a, a Bush neocon at the time. And after that, I had some people start to, you know, cause they go like, well, why did this happen? And there was, you know, the very topical things of, well, people borrowed money for houses they couldn't afford, which is, you know, kind of a, a very easy answer to a complex question. And so as I started to, to dig more, that's where I kind of came upon, you know, people that had written articles prior, you know, in, in quite a few years prior to that, um, that were saying, you know, this is going to happen. Um, and, you know, there's issues in the housing market and all that kind of stuff. And I was like, well, who, who are these people? And the vast majority of them, you know, outside of like, you know, the neural Rabinis of the world um, were saying that, you know, this is because of what you guys call the, the business cycle theory and, and all that. I was wondering if you could kind of give the lead up to the 2008 financial crisis, because that's a little bit closer in people's minds, you know, than the 20s and 30s. And and oh, kind of sure. go like, you know, why did, you know, the 2008, you know, why did the housing boom occur in the first place? Um, and what was the kind of the Austrian warning signs before that? And then what were, you know, the Keynesians uh, saying at that time and then afterwards? Sure. So and let me try to motivate this or <laughs> get your listeners to at least give me the uh, their ear here because if they go look, um, if you Google Robert Murphy, uh, the worst recession in 25 years, you'll see that in October of 2007, right? So that was 11 months before the financial crisis, you know, the takeover AIG and all that stuff, the fall of Lehman Brothers. So 11 months before then, I have an article that ran at Mises.org laying out the basics of what I'm going to tell you here in a second and just looking at the numbers and the charts. And I was saying, wow, this, this looks like we're in store for what might be the worst recession in 25 years. So it wasn't just that I knew, oh yeah, there's something, you know, a crash that seems imminent. It's that I was saying, this is going to be bad. This is going to be, you know, going back to the to the bad recession of the early eighties. Um, <clears throat> whereas a lot of people at that point didn't even think the economy was in trouble. Like if you go to YouTube and look up Ben Bernanke was wrong you'll see a compilation of hilarious <laughs> clips from Ben Bermanke going back to, you know, 2006 at least where he just systematically every stage of the crisis 
kept downplaying it. First, he said, oh, yeah, there's some froth in the housing sector. And then it was, oh, yeah, there's problems in the subprime, but it's going to be contained. And then it was, oh, yeah, housing's in trouble, but we don't think it'll be a recession. And then it was, oh, yeah, there's going to be a recession, but it won't be too bad. So just every step of the way, Bernanke was either wrong or lying. We don't, you know, obviously don't know which. Whereas, again, the Austrians, and it's not just that I, you know, I was relatively late to the game. Guys like Mark Thornton in 2004 um, were predicting that there was going to be a bad crash in housing. And Ron Paul, there's plenty of stuff when he's in the congressional record, just, you know, warning about the you know, uh, Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac and so forth and, and talking about the, the Fed's policies. So as far as, you know, so how did we get that? So where are we, where are we coming from? So if you remember... In the late 90s, there was what was called the dot-com bubble, you know, the internet stocks, tech stocks. And then those started crashing, and then there was the September 11th attacks in 2001. So those events should have put the U.S. into a, you know, to have a really bad recession. But Alan Greenspan, who was chair of the Fed at the time, he, he cut the interest rates down to 1%. And he held them there for a year. Um, so that was by June of 2003, they were down to 1%, held them there for a year. And so that coincided with the, the surge in home prices. And so, and so when it comes to like the Keynesians, Paul Krugman literally said in the early 2000s um, and in his New York Times column, he was quoting somebody, but he, if you read the context, he was clearly endorsing the sentiment saying to fight. Uh, this is an exact quote, but this is, this is the, definitely the spirit. He said something like to, to cause a snapback in the economy, Alan Greenspan needs to replace the dot-com bubble with the housing bubble. Or something like that, you know, and so he, he's being a bit flippant, but that's exactly what Greenspan did do. And so the point is, you know, that's the, you know, in, in my view, that's the Keynesian solution is they just keep giving, you know, setting us up with one bubble after another to try to goose spending when that's clearly not a long term solution. Um, <clears throat> and so in the Austrian framework, Greenspan wasn't doing any favors by propping up housing by flooding the market with cheap credit that fueled the housing bubble. Um, interest rates are a price that they serve a function, they communicate information. And so if the interest rate is artificially low, it's not doing its job. It's, it's misleading people. And in the Austrian framework, what it does is it causes entrepreneurs to engage in long-term investment projects for which there's not genuine saving. Right. So an artificially low interest rate, in a sense, gives a green light to longer term projects than really ought to be launched. Because if the interest rate were higher, if you just think about it, a high interest rate is kind of like a penalty on long projects. Like you don't want to keep capital tied up for too long before you sell the thing to the final customer if interest rates are high because your capital is rolling over and getting dinged at the higher interest rate. And so low interest rates sort of give you permission for longer projects if you think there's going to be um, you know, something, a benefit down the road by, by having a long project. And so the idea is by the Fed cutting interest rates artificially, they were misleading entrepreneurs and they were starting these long-term projects, even though the economy didn't actually have the resources to justify them. So in the Austrian framework, that's what an unsustainable boom is. It feels people in the economy feel like they're richer than they really are. And so unemployment's low, everybody's getting raises, companies are bidding workers, trying to hire them away from each other, wages are rising, profits are high, because consumers aren't really saving more, they feel rich, they're getting raises at work, so they're not saving as much, you know, and their assets, their houses or whatever are rising in price, so they don't feel like they need to save much out of their paycheck, because hey, my house keeps going up 10 grand a year, what do I need to save for? And at the same time, entrepreneurs are engaging in a massive construction spree because interest rates are so low. So it's like every sector in the economy is trying to expand, even though there's not more real equipment and capital goods to go around. So for a while, that illusion can last, and everybody feels rich, but it's built on quicksand. And then ultimately, at some point, you know, the banks get nervous, they stop extending credit, the Fed starts raising rates, and then that's when reality sets in, and that's what we see as the crash. So that's you know, that's what the Austrians saw as, as what happened and what caused fueled the housing bubble and then the crash. And so in that in that context, then and by, and by the way, there's all sorts of other stuff going on. There's plenty of hanky panky in the private sector and Fannie and Freddie and Community Reinvestment Act and all this stuff that might have channeled it into housing. But in terms of what fueled this 
so-called irrational exuberance, I would say the Fed creating money and injecting in the financial sector, that's a pretty obvious candidate. And, um, and so if that's right, or even if that's part of the story, then the real problem for us right now is what did Ben Bernanke do? This, you know, the next Fed chair when the crisis hit in 2008 is he did way more of the same, right? He cut interest rates down to zero, not just 1% like Greenspan had done. And then with quantitative easing, he pumped in way more into the financial markets than Greenspan ever did. And so if what Greenspan did was merely replace the dot-com bubble with a housing bubble, then I think what Bernanke did is he replaced the housing bubble with a bubble in the stock market and treasuries and you know perhaps uh, bonds issued by European governments. Do we actually know how much the Fed printed during that period? Well, you got to be careful. So there's different, um, there's different yeah. metrics. So, I mean, you can, it's easy enough to go look and see the Fed's balance sheet and how much did it increase. So it went from something like $850 billion in the, in the fall of 2008. So right, going right into the crisis, you know, when Lehman failed and they took over AIG, I think it was like $850 billion. And then pretty soon, you know, by the end of that year, it was up. It had more than doubled, and right now it's like I think four and a half trillion. Okay, so you so that's one one measurement in terms of like the total carrying stock of the Fed's assets, but other measures like they had they opened up a lot of um, special lending programs that were real short term. So like Wall Street investment banks that were in trouble could go to the Fed and borrow a lot of money real short term and then pay it back. And then maybe somebody else would borrow money. So, you know, at any given time, the Fed might not have that much out lent to these banks. But if you if you count it like, oh, they lent, you know, 50 million here and then they paid it back and then they lent 50 million here. If you count that as 100 million total that was lent in that period, then that number is really big because they, you know, again, they had a lot of short term liquidity that they were providing to these banks. So that number in there, I. I don't know if they even published that. They might publish like the totals. There was a funny thing that it was in December of 2008, I believe. Yeah. That Congress had Bernanke come and they were asking him like, okay, you set up all these, you know, TELF and so forth, these trouble asset uh, programs and making these short-term loans to banks that are in trouble and need liquidity. Just, you know, which banks are taking out these loans? Like they weren't, Congress wasn't even saying you can't do it. They, they weren't second guessing the decision. They were just asking him, can you at least tell us you're, you know, you're effectively creating billions of dollars electronically and lending it out to private sector institutions. Who are you lending this money to? And Bernanke said, no, I can't tell you the names of the institutions because then the public would lose confidence in them and that would defeat the purpose of the program. So like, you know, so Bernanke was telling Congress that I'm not even going to tell you we're creating this money out of thin air and lending it to bankers, and I'm not even going to tell you who they are. So, <laughs> so to answer your question, um, some of that stuff, like you can see the top level figure, like the aggregates, but I don't know how much of that. Certainly at the time, it was secret. I don't know, like you know, after the fact, years later, do they, you know, do they publish it? I'm not, I'm not sure. Would that lend credence a little bit where you said that uh, the, you know, the dot com led to the housing, housing? possibly led to, you know, stocks, bonds, where uh, David Stockman's been predicting for the last few years, you know, a 40% dump um, to a recession in, in the stock market. I mean, it's, it's always kind of hard to, it's impossible to predict, you know, exact percentages of all, but uh, it, it does seem to come from the same sort of insight uh, that, that, that the Austrian school has as far as for the, the booms and busts. Yeah. And Stockman's a really interesting guy because I would say he's more like, um, how can I put it? So the Austrian framework that I've just given you here is more of a, a big picture, looking at from the lofty heights and just in terms of grand conceptual things and up oh, and the Fed did this. And so, you know, clearly we can expect there was an unsustainable boom. And where do we think those asset bubbles might be? And then you kind of look around casually where Stockman is more like from the ground up, like just, you know, looking at mispricings and things like that. Um, so I, I mean, he's definitely very sympathetic to the Austrian view. I don't know if he calls himself an Austrian, but yes, I most of the stuff I've read from Stockman, I, I endorse, or at least I, I think it's very plausible. Um, I don't know off the top of my head, you know, how does he come up with that forty percent figure? What I will say 
is if you chart, like even just going to like Fred, the St. Louis Fed's online charting database that, you know, is a very um, powerful, real quick um, tool to use if, if your listeners haven't played around with it. But you can do stuff like chart the Fed's balance sheet or you can type in like total assets of the Federal Reserve System against um, the S&P 500, for example. And from 2009 up through right before Trump got elected, those two things moved together hand in glove. It was eerie, just showing that when the stock market, you know, after the crisis was immediately over, when the stock market was booming, it was when the Fed was buying assets. And then when the Fed stopped buying assets, the stock market was flat or even falling until the next round of QE kicked in. And then once the so-called taper was fully implemented and the, and the, the Fed had just been treading water. So I, people were a lot of times saying stuff like, oh, yeah, the crazy money printing of Bernanke and Yellen. Actually, under Janet Yellen, the Fed was kind of just treading water, that the Fed was not buying more assets and expanding what's called the monetary base. They basically, she just oversaw the tapering, and then the Fed didn't do much until she you know left office. And and so and then during that period, the S and P five hundred was it bounced around, but it was basically flat. So that so at that time, yeah, I thought the stock market is entirely being driven by monetary policy. And if you think about it, that makes sense because like the stuff the Obama administration was doing was not good for the economy, it was not good for profitable corporate profits or whatever in and of itself. You know, like raising taxes and. He kept threatening them to, you know, put on a carbon tax or cap and trade. They had the clean power plan to, you know, restrict electricity production from coal-fired power plants. Obamacare, obviously, right? So there's lots of things that Obama did that you, in and of itself, you would expect to have a drag on economic growth. So it's kind of weird that the stock market was just blowing up, um, you know, during his administration, Whereas it did make sense to say, oh, yeah, the Fed's just creating trillions of dollars and pumping in the financial sector. Maybe that's doing it. So that, like I said, that moved hand in glove, those charts of the S&P 500 and the Fed's total assets. Once Trump got elected, though, it did look like the stock market surged even as the Fed was not expanding anymore. Then, of course, even started um, contracting. So there I would say the, the, the rise in the market since Trump's election you could argue was due to quote fundamentals. Like people saying, you know what, he's going to, he might lower taxes or he might lower regulations or whatever. So especially relative to what Hillary Clinton would have done, because that's really, you know, if, if prices had reflected a Clinton administration and then all of a sudden everyone's shocked that no, it actually it's Trump. You could see how estimates of future corporate profitability, you know, would have been revised upward. So, um, you know, I, I agree with Stockman. And yeah, I've been worried that the Fed has blown up a giant asset bubble. And now that they're raising rates, you can see things like the yield curve is close to inverting. So a lot of standard warning signs and metrics by which you'd expect a big market correction or even crash, I think are, you know, they're, they're manifesting themselves. And since I think the Fed has just been, you know, blown up an asset bubble since 2008, it wouldn't surprise me at all if we had a really hard crash. But again, when is it going to happen I don't know, <laughs> but it, you know, that's that's the thing with bubbles. If you think something is is irrationally high and it's only staying up that high, it stays up that high as long as people think it will. And then if there's for some reason some blow to confidence, it can collapse pretty fast. The uh, uh, the the last question I wanted to ask you was was Bitcoin related. I really I realized I didn't ask you this before, but uh, where did you first hear about it? Uh, and and you know. What convinced you of its validity? Like, what, what was kind of that that moment um, when you kind of went like, "Hey, you know, this is actually something real. It's not just some weird internet nerd money uh, that someone's just going to hack and it's going to go away." Sure. Um, and actually, you may have asked me, and I maybe I just forgot to answer you um, earlier. Uh, I don't remember like the you know there was a period when Bitcoin first came out, and more and more people who were like techno geeks in my community of, you know, acquaintances were, were mentioning it. And I, I don't remember, um, you know, what made me start more and more to take it seriously for sure. I know one thing was, um, Tatiana Moroz, you know, she's a singer songwriter, but she also got more and more into, into Bitcoin. She had been going to Bitcoin conferences 
and she mentioned to me, um, I think this was in 2010, but I'm, I'm, I could be wrong. Um, it might've been later, but at some point she mentioned to me and she said, you know, Bob, these, these Bitcoin conferences, they're not like other libertarian conferences where people just go and they're real depressed and they just, you know, bitch and moan about the government that these Bitcoin conferences, that's like people, they're creators, people are building stuff and everybody's really optimistic. So you should go to one of these things at least once just to see the difference in the culture. And so I was like, oh, huh, that's interesting. And, and so at this point, and I was getting more and more into it. Um, and I, my timeline here is a little bit fuzzy. I can't remember the exact order of events. But I um, I went to the, the thing is called the Texas Bitcoin Conference. And, uh, and it was there, you know, and I was going around and listening to the different talks. Um, I think Michael Goldstein gave a talk. And I think it might have been his talk that really you know, flipped it for him, but there was, there was just a bunch of things. So it was definitely at that conference when I finally, like it fully hit me and I just realized, okay, yeah, the, like the power of the blockchain and exactly why people are so excited about this and, and what exactly Bitcoin did. Cause it, you know, going back to like we, we mentioned earlier, Hayek's proposal for private, privately issued fiat paper currency. A lot of people like to say, oh, Hayek anticipated Bitcoin, but he really didn't. I mean, it depends what you mean by anticipated it, but in in Hayek's framework, there was you know you still need had to trust the individual issuers. It's just Hayek thought that with competition, that was a much better method of keeping them honest than just you know hoping your government would do the right thing or that you know inflation wouldn't get so bad. The, you know like the things that are holding central banks back nowadays. Hayek thought no, there'd be you know genuine market competition. You know the way you keep. Nike honest is because it's in competition with other sneaker companies. You know, that, that that's really what, what keeps private companies honest is the threat of competition and losing market share. And so that's what Hayek's deal with. So that wasn't a trustless system, Hayek's framework. You know, I think he would have thought, you know, wouldn't even be able to imagine something like Bitcoin. So in terms of the technology and just the intellectual innovation of what it was that Bitcoin did, that didn't fully hit me, I don't think, until that conference. And then, you know, oh, gee, and then I got it. <clears throat> um, and, and then it, I collaborated. You know, the more I studied, and I, so what I tried to do early on was I could see there were economists who were trying to use standard monetary theory to explain Bitcoin, but they really didn't understand how Bitcoin worked. And so I could tell they, they were kind of making basic mistakes when they were fumbling around trying to talk about it. And then on the other hand, there were like the programmers and the tech guys who understood full well exactly how Bitcoin worked. And then they were trying to talk about it economically, but they didn't really know much about monetary theory. And so they were kind of fuzzy and getting stuff wrong. And so that's when I teamed up with Silas Barda and we wrote our guide, Understanding Bitcoin, which is at understandingbitcoin.us. It's a free PDF. People want to look at that, where we just tried to give a common framework there and just explain you know, the mechanics of this is how Bitcoin actually works in terms of the you know public key cryptography and that sort of stuff. And then the, the, the you know the basic monetary theory and you know this is the way to analyze Bitcoin and you know oh is it it's not inflationary what does that mean it's deflationary you know that kind of stuff. Oh, and actually, I there's one more question I wanted to ask you if uh, any of the people that have been listening and and they kind of wanted some beginner's guides to understand you know economics and specifically the Austrian school you mentioned Henry Hazlitt, but uh, w w was there any other names of of some kind of like very you know very beginner you know kind of uh, material sure so yes if you're especially if you're saying about money in particular murray rothbard's book uh or it might even be called a pamphlet what has government done to our money that's a real good you, know, you can get the free pdf of that if you just google it you know it'll be at mises.org so that's a good one um, forgive the self-promotion, but if you want to understand fractional reserve banking in terms of commercial banks and how, you know, you give a hundred dollars into your checking account and the bank then lends out, uh, you know, the banking system lends out multiples of that to other people. Um, this book that I have with Carlos Lara called how privatized banking really works. I think that's got the best discussion of that, of that topic in there for, you know, for, for the intelligent layperson. Um, so yeah, I think I think those two, but and I'll just mention it because it is a classic in its own right. But to to sort of get the sinister 
story of the origin of the Federal Reserve, um, Griffin's The Creature from Jekyll Island, is is a real fun read. So if people have heard people talk about that, never look. You you, you could give that. You know, he gets into stuff like you know the the banking cartel and their role in financing both sides in World War One. You know, so so people who who like that element of the history of it to kind of understand why is it that some people are so passionate about taking banking away from the establishment and sort of, you know, giving it to the people, if you will, that's, uh, you know, that's a good book talking about that as well. And you also, uh, Human Action is uh, probably Mises' most famous book, and you also have a uh, kind of a, an intro study guide to that, correct? Yeah, so if you want to read Human Human Action, that that's certainly going to lay this. But that you know that that's a it's a big book, um, but certainly it's very methodical in there. And yes, I have a if you just Google Robert Murphy's Study Guide Human Action, you can get the free PDF. Also, my book Choice from the Independent Institute is about a three hundred page book. Where if you want to you know if you, if you're willing to read a three hundred page book and you really want to understand the Austrian school approach with an emphasis on money banking and the business cycle. That's what I wrote choice for. It was basically to take Mises and boil it down into a 300 page book that an undergrad could understand. Um, and, so, and so that's what I did in that book choice. No, and, and I will attest to the the study guide being very helpful because I uh, that was like back in 2013, 2012, something like that. I bought human action and and that was probably one of the hardest books that I that I tried and attempted to read and i don't know how many times i i would stop and put it down and go okay i just had you know massive amounts of like notes all over like okay what does this mean and what does that mean you know then you're spending all this time to look and go back and so i mean it's a very a difficult treatise for someone to go through if they don't have a, a you know a better background in economics so i can attest that the study guide is very helpful and also uh, to roll into um the giveaway that we're going to do uh, is that I will be doing a giveaway of a free copy of um, either that that study guide, which I found to be very helpful or choice, or uh, your latest book as well, which is um, Contra Krugman, which is uh, kind of boils down a lot of the... Well, actually, why don't you explain what Contra Krugman is? Sure. So as I mentioned, uh, I have a, a podcast with Tom Woods where every week we take the latest op-ed from Paul Krugman. So Paul Krugman, Nobel Prize winner, but he's he's the representative of Keynesian economics. So the idea that, Oh, you know, after the 2008 financial crisis, Paul Krugman was front and center saying the government needs to run big budget deficits in order to prop up demand and to, you know, restore full employment that, you know, that was his, that was, you know, his, his mantra. So over the years, I have written a lot of online articles and various outlets taking something Krugman wrote and then criticizing it and giving, you know, my own explanation. Um, and it just got to the point, like, just, I kind of became an expert on his stuff. And so a lot of times he contradicts himself or he, you know, flip flops, if not an outright contradiction. And so I, a lot of times would be, you know, have a pretty funny article quoting Krugman saying this thing now, but, oh, wait a minute, two years ago, he said this, you know, so a lot of people like that. Cause if you don't know him, Krugman is, is extremely arrogant and he's very nasty. Yeah, you know, just, like he literally calls his opponents, you know, knaves and fools, you know, saying that they're they're either lying, they're you know, they're they're bad or they're stupid. Um, and so when you catch him contradicting himself or like he's making fun of a view that's literally out of his own textbook, that kind of stuff, it's kind of amusing. And I and I teach economics along the way. So what this book is, Contra Krugman, the book, it's just a collection of all these essays I've wrote written over the years critiquing Paul Krugman and they're, they're organized by topic. It's a big book. It's like 600 pages, but there it's a real breezy read. Like it's just a collection of essays that are, you know, each essay is pretty, pretty short. So, you know, you can just go to whatever section you want and, and check it out. And it's, you know, it's the, the, uh, the early readers of it have, have said that it's very entertaining for what that's worth. And this show will be going live uh, the day before Thanksgiving on the 23rd. So we'll be running this basically till the end of the month. And uh, so anybody who's listening, all they have to do is just share this on Twitter, Facebook, uh, Instagram, whatever, and just tag Bob and myself in it uh, to be entered. And uh, right after that, we will we will uh, pick the winner. Uh, and Bob, I really have to 
thank you very much for taking time out of your day, you know, to come on. Uh, we're recording in the evening, so it's after already a long day. So I appreciate your time. And and uh, what's the best way for people to get a hold of you? Um, well, I appreciate it, Dustin. Thanks for having me on. Uh, right now, I guess I would just point them to my website. And that's consultingbyrpm.com. That's for Robert Patrick Murphy, consultingbyrpm.com. That's where you can find all my different uh, outlets. And I'll have links to to uh, Bob's website, his book or multiple books, Twitter handle, and basically anything else that we mentioned as far as for link, uh, articles, links, books, and everything like that in the show notes. And once again, Bob, thank you. Thanks. Thanks again. Hey, folks, I hope that you enjoyed this interview as much as I did. I've been really looking forward to it. I wanted to throw one more thing out there, and I saw this after Bob's interview with me. This was a couple weeks ago. He actually has his own podcast, solo podcast now. It's called The Bob Murphy Show. You can go to bobmurphyshow.com, and you can find the links to that podcast uh, in the show notes at didyouknowcrypto.com, episode 15 and you'll find all the information there. I've got links to everything, so please like, review, rate those podcasts on every single platform that you consume podcasts at, share it on Twitter and all that kind of stuff. Help our friends out here in the space. So give Bob Murphy some love and share his podcast, rate and review it, bobmurphyshow.com. And thanks again for listening, everybody.